It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. We are one month away from Election Day, Sky. Yeah, like we've been talking about the past couple of weeks, we have seen those swing districts really fire up and the competition is getting less nice. (laughs) Less nice, that's a good way to put it. It's pretty hot and we're going to talk about these General Assembly races in our interview segment. Thank you for Listening to the podcast, we know you probably saw that this podcast is a little long today. It's long because we really think you need to hear this conversation with Nathan Babcock over at the Senate Republicans and Morgan Jackson, who works for Governor Cooper. It is a fascinating interview, so you're going to want to listen to it. Thanks for listening today. So back to the news. On Monday, we saw that In that race, we've talked about this race a couple of times between Senator Michael Lee down in New Hanover County and Marsha Morgan. He filed a defamation lawsuit. She made some pretty bold allegations about him and his law firm. He practices law down in New Hanover County. I think he does a lot of real estate, business real estate law. And she's pretty much saying that he's on the take. That's right. She essentially said he had unethical behavior. And so he filed a defamation lawsuit saying that it would hurt his business. I'm not sure if that's scheduled for court. I haven't seen anything that says that. Be interesting to know whether or not that would come to fruition before the election. You would know better than I, but I think a lot of these lawsuits, they're filed because they get a headline. And it's your way of saying, I feel so strongly that she is misrepresenting the truth that I'm willing to file a lawsuit and spend that money. I think it's almost a message to voters. This isn't the first time Senator Lee's campaign has accused someone of lying. A couple of weeks ago, we saw that his wife cut an ad for him about abortion and said that his opponent was lying about his position on abortion. She even went so far as to say Governor Cooper is misrepresenting the truth that Senator Lee has more moderate views on abortion rights. You know, we'll talk about it later in the podcast with Nathan and Morgan. That is ground zero for the Senate and whether they do get super majorities or not. So this week we saw some more movement in the courts, the voter ID case. We've talked about it in past episodes of the podcast. It got some traction this week. So what's interesting is that both the voter ID case and the redistricting case are at the state Supreme Court. And one was on Monday, one was on Tuesday. Also at the Supreme Court of the United States is the independent state legislature theory. That's Moore v. Harper. And so there are a lot of cases moving through right now, but the voter ID case was heard at the Supreme Court on Monday. Remember when those constitutional amendments passed? After they passed, you have to then pass a bill that's implementing legislation. So that's legislation that really explains what the constitutional amendment will do. And they did that for all of those constitutional amendments that passed. And so the argument is about that bill, not the constitutional amendment. 
But if you invalidate the bill, then you invalidate the amendment. So the legislature is arguing, hey, you're invalidating the voters of North Carolina who chose to pass this constitutional amendment. Overwhelmingly. Yes. And you're hearing the same sort of argument from the other side that you've heard throughout voter ID debates, that you're disenfranchising voters. What's interesting is that this voter ID law, they specifically said how many people it will impact. And they said 1,200 people would be impacted by this. Those are the folks that wouldn't be able to vote. I do recall that there was some legislation where folks would get a free ID. I don't know how that comes into play. But that is what is before the Supreme Court and will be interesting because it's a 4-3 court. Democrat, Republican. Right. And these could be some of the last cases before there's a new Supreme Court next term. The Republicans that are on the ballot for this November, they are up in the polls. That's not to say they prevail, but all indications at this point in the election, Republicans seem poised to take over the North Carolina Supreme Court in 2023. So about the redistricting case, what's going on there? That is a great question because there are so many cases to follow and to really keep track of. I'm not even sure that I'm keeping track of them, but... On Tuesday, the argument before the Supreme Court was specifically about redistricting and how they should be redrawn again after that February ruling. What is each side saying in this redistricting case? So what's interesting about this case is that this is the case that's moved through and there was a panel of judges who were assigned or tasked with redrawing the districts. And the folks bringing this case are saying that those judges did not comply Mm. with the standards set by the court for redrawing the districts. So they want them further altered. And the General Assembly is arguing, how many times are we going to do this? It's really not worth it to do it at this point because we're going to have to redraw maps again. It's a waste of time. Well, the thing about redistricting cases, they, they've been going on since I've been in politics, even before. I mean, starting in 1992 when the Millwatt district was drawn in the 12th, looked like a snake going through North Carolina. I feel like it's at this point just baked into our politics, right? It does feel that way. So another case, this is at the U.S. Supreme Court. This has actually gotten a lot of national media. Yeah. It's around this idea of the independent state legislature theory. And I'll be honest, Guy, I don't know if I understand this. I know one side is saying the sky is falling. And then the other side is saying, oh, there's nothing to see here. What's going on here? As you've heard from a lot of different podcasts have covered this news media, and you have heard a lot about the implications of this across the United States. So Moore v. Harper really is a case focused on the fact that our state legislature has the power to draw these districts. 
But in however many elections, however many times those cases have gone to the courts, then the courts draw them. And whether or not the legislature has the power to draw their districts or that should be turned over to the courts. Essentially, the state legislature is an independent force. Now, where the controversy comes in is that this is something that hasn't been used. The theory hasn't been used. And that same theory could be used for elections and validating who was elected as president. The state legislature could essentially pick who that is. And so from everything that I have heard, this would be a narrow decision on gerrymandering, redistricting, those sorts of cases. So the left is saying a state out there could say, no, we're not going to let the elected electors go to the electoral college. We're going to appoint our own electors. Anytime something like this happens, the people say that democracy is going to end. Yeah. One case isn't going to break it all down. So the way it works now, right, the General Assembly draws the districts. They get sued. They're told to redraw the districts. And then at some point, the courts are saying, okay, give us the crayons. We're going to appoint a special master. So this independent theory is saying, look, you can't take this from us. We have to always be drawing maps. Now, you could strike them down. We draw the maps. Is that boiled down to its essence what this is about? Yeah, and it's specifically about congressional districts because if you think about it, it's federal. So it's specifically about federal issues. The Supreme Court's first Monday was this week, but we don't have a schedule yet on when this case is going to be heard. It's not going to be heard until later in the year. So with all this news flying, we still have room for some unsubstantiated rumors. Unsubstantiated rumors. (laughs) That's a great little lead in there. Quite a singer. So a couple weeks back, we had Senator Jim Bergen on the podcast. That was a great interview. And I got a couple calls, some from legislators saying, did you know he's thinking of running for lieutenant governor? And I said, well, you know, we, we talked to him. I even asked him on the podcast what his future plans are. And he said he wasn't ready to share anything. And then we talked a lot after the podcast and he didn't commit again. We kind of had asked him if that was in the cards. But anyway, we're going to put it out there. Definitely unsubstantiated by Senator Bergen. And then we had a listener who DM'd us last week and said that Representative Raymond Smith, who lost, by the way, his primary election this past spring, so he is out of the General Assembly in 2023, but Representative Raymond Smith is looking to get into the lieutenant governor's race on the Democratic side. So we got a Republican, Jim Bergen, a Democrat, Raymond Smith, looking at that lieutenant governor's race. You know, other names we've mentioned in past podcasts, Representative Brian Turner, he said he couldn't substantiate it. And Senator Sidney Batch is also being looked at for that lieutenant governor's race. Brian Turner and Sidney Batch are Democrats. So good rumors. If you've got some rumors out there, please share them with us because we will share them with our listeners. We know our listeners are more plugged in to the everyday happenings of the North Carolina political scene and the General Assembly. So we spoke with Nathan Babcock and Morgan Jackson about the North Carolina General Assembly elections. 
The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. Nathan Babcock and Morgan Jackson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good Good, to be here. Good to be with you. To start us off, we'll start with each of you. We'll start with you, Nathan. What is your role as we approach elections? Uh, So first, just I want to say thanks for having me. And I know that, you know, the theme of this is do politics better. So I assume that you've gone through everybody who does politics better now and you've gotten to the political (laughs) hacks. Uh, So thanks for having me and Morgan on. So my role, I'm a political consultant in the even years, and so I manage campaigns, and, and my, my main client is the North Carolina Republican Senate Caucus. So I work with them, crafting the ads, doing the strategy to, to win you know, as many Senate seats as possible for the Republicans. Morgan. Hey, well, again, it's glad to be with you. And I share, Nathan, that you do in politics. The, we'll do politics the worst today. Uh, I, I can't wait. If this is going downhill, I can't wait to see the hell on next week. Uh, exactly. So in my role, I oversee all of Governor Cooper's investments in legislative campaigns and have for several years since we started investing in 2018. Obviously, I've done all the governor's races and a, a lot of others, but my primary involvement is based on his investment. And you've done presidential races as well here in the state. I've done a little bit of everything, man. I've done presidential races the dog catcher it's, it's uh the, the only difference is they spend more money yeah this podcast is dropping 31 days before election day early voting will start in a little less than three weeks morgan where do you see the election right now especially as it pertains to the general assembly it's tied in a lot of these top races you know you've got a number of races that either democrats control currently or Republicans control currently that are going to be won by plus or minus one, one and a half points. And I think you're starting to see some real spending now as voters begin to pay attention. There's been a lot of mail, a lot of digital drop through the summer. That's helpful. It lays a foundation. But until you get on television, voters really aren't tuning in. You've seen a lot of money raised by both sides, and now's the time to spend it. You know, one of the things that I spend a lot of time thinking about in these Senate districts is you've got the difference in four seats where Joe Biden got either 50, but between 52% of the vote and 49% of the vote. And those districts are going to be really key to determine whether or not Republicans gain a supermajority this time in the Senate. And you can say the same thing in the House. But on the Senate side, it's really going to come down to some of those seats. Uh, Republicans in the Senate have to pick up two seats. Obviously, these are new maps. So it's not, uh, they don't add up to. Uh, uh, sort of apples and apples uh, based on what where, where members are today. But again, I think the, the state of place is very tight. It's a fluid electorate. Uh, the folks said that the 7 to 10% of people who are going to make the decision this election on all these tight races hadn't even started tuning in yet. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I, it, I'm not, not to give away any anything that we're seeing in our <laughs> polling, but I can agree in principle that there's, there's a lot of close races right now. I think in the Senate comes down to about four or five races. Michael Lee um, against Marsha Morgan down in New Hanover is the most expensive race so far, even though it's a cheap media market. That's going to break records, I'm sure, for GRPs in a Senate race. Uh, you've got uh, Valerie Jordan and Bobby Hannig is a big race. you got the two seats in Wake County uh, with Mark Cavallaro against Sidney Batch and E.C. Sykes against uh, Mary Wills Bodie. And then you have down in Cumberland County, uh, Wesley Meredith against Val Applewhite. 
those five seats will determine, you know, if, if the Republicans win supermajority or not. We, we need to win two out of those five to get the supermajority. So we're seeing poll after poll about the issues that people care about in this election. And those seats that both of y'all are referencing, particularly in the Senate, what are the issues that are moving voters this election? We'll start with you, Morgan. So I think it depends on where you are. You know, we talk a lot about issues and sort of the environment of where we are statewide, nationally. Uh, I always talk about legislative races, and they're a lot like real estate. It's about location, location, location. Uh, an issue that might be the number one issue statewide or might be the number one issue or number two issue nationally might have zero bearing in a certain either very urban, suburban district or a very rural district. It's very different issues across the landscape. You're obviously seeing the economy is an issue everywhere. Uh, you see, especially in districts that have a suburban influence, and of the seven or so we're talking about in the Senate, six of them have heavily suburban electorates or influenced elect electorates, and abortion is a real key in those districts. We're seeing, especially with suburban college-educated voters, that abortion is a driving issue for them this fall and what motivates. You know, one thing I think, Sky, is important to understand uh, about midterms in general is midterms are about motivation. And the party that is the most motivated is the party that generally wins a midterm. And the, but the thing you also have to understand is motivation is driven by anger. It's not driven by hope or joy or any other, um, any other emotion. It's driven by anger. For much of this cycle, the Republicans were angry the day Joe Biden was elected, and they have been ginned up the entire time. Democrats were not for much of this year uh, until the Dobbs decision came down, and that has really changed. We look at things across these districts and it's not, you know, issue based does matter, but it's about the motivated. These are base electorates that are going to turn out who can turn out their base wins. With it, Frankly, the um, sliver of the electric that is undecided gets smaller because a lot of those voters that make the huge amount of undecided swing voters are more presidential year voters than they are actual midterm voters. And so it's, can you get your base out? What motivates them? As we talk about, obviously, and Nathan can talk about it, Republicans are focused on the economy. Democrats are talking about the economy a lot, but they're also talking about abortion access and what it means for health care for women for North Carolina. Nathan, in those swing districts that you're looking at in the Senate, what issues are you seeing move people? Well, as Morgan was talking about, a lot of these districts, the Democrats are, are trying to focus on abortion as, as their way to, to gin up their base and motivate their voters. We've been focused on the economy everywhere, and crime is also a growing issue. We'll get to that in a second, but just looking at the economy. So nationally, I looked at this before I walked over. Biden's approval ratings are the real clear politics average nationally is at 42 fave, 52 unfave. That's, that's the most important factor in a midterm election. The president's party usually takes punishment from the electorate because they're generally uh, there's a backlash from the previous election. We all know that that that's been true for a hundred years. There's basically been, only been two times in the last eighty or ninety years where that trend has been bucked, where the where the party in power in the White House has actually picked up seats in Congress. This only happened twice since since Franklin D. Roosevelt. So that's one thing. The right track wrong track number nationally which is even, to me... A, Can you a, explain what that is for folks? Yeah, so the right track, wrong track is a question you get in, in standard polls. Is do you, do you think the country is going in the right direction or have things pretty seriously gotten off on the wrong track? The right track, wrong track right now is 27% right track, 66% wrong track. 
generally when you see a number like that, the, the electorate is about to take it out on the party in power, and that's the Democrats. Do you think there could be those answering that question who are upset about the Dobbs decision? Because that seems to really be out there. People are upset at the federal government, and I think they're including the courts. Sure. I mean, that's that's an issue. Um, we've you know, we do a lot of polling. We've been tracking this all summer and into this fall to see kind of where the voters priorities lie in terms of abortion versus economy versus crime. I think it really peaked this summer uh, over voters being really engaged over the abortion issue. I think that's waned a good bit. And, and you see that nationally with Republican poll numbers improving. You see the generic ballot for Republicans ticking back up again. So I think the resting heart rate of the of the electorate right now, the political environment that's standard when you have a midterm election like this, is voters are ready to throw out the party in power, which mm-hmm. is the Democrats. I think the Dobbs decision gave the Democrats some some things to hang their hat on to be optimistic about, but I th- I think that that is is waning, and people see that the economy is the main issue. You know, a, a couple issues I'd say, I, and I think Nathan's right about uh, President Biden's numbers. I mean, they are in the tank here, they're in the tank everywhere. But there are a couple things that we're starting to see, not only nationally, but we see in all these legislative polls. And it's, it's a phenomenon that we won't know exactly what has happened until after Election Day. But you're seeing it across the board, whether it is a local superintendent race in Ohio or whether it is a U.S. Senate race or whether these legislative races, 99.9% of Democrats on the ballot this year are outperforming Biden everywhere. Rural districts, blue di- I mean, red districts, blue districts, urban, suburban, rural and what the, and so there's a phenomenon that a lot of folks are starting to look at. Is it, and I agree with everything you said about the midterms are a challenge because of that, that. But there's a phenomenon that might be taking place that it is not that Democrats are over are excuse me overperforming Biden. Is that Biden is underperforming Democrats? Mm. And what that means is the floor is higher uh, for Democrats this cycle. We're seeing it in every single poll we do that a state Senate Democratic candidate is polling anywhere from five to seven points better in every single one of these districts. Districts we're going to win and districts we're going to lose, let me be clear, uh, more than Biden is. And so Biden may not be the anchor around the neck of his party the way that you have seen in traditional cycles for a Democrat and Republican president. The other thing I'll say is Trump has an outsized influence for an executive outer power, a larger influence on the electorate than any president in modern history, maybe ever, honestly. And so it, it is challenging. We see a lot of the right track, wrong track numbers. And, and you're right, Brian, you see a lot of folks, you see a lot of Democrats who think the country's on the wrong track. They're focused on abortion access, the fact that they feel like democracy is failing. Uh, they look at the Supreme Court, they look at a lot of things that are happening in DC and are unhappy with them. And so that's one of the reasons you're right track, wrong track. Traditionally, what you see with a right track, wrong track is one party Whoever's party's in charge thinks everything's going fine. Whatever party's our power, out of power thinks everything's in the tank. And what you're seeing now is most of voters think the country's on the wrong track for one reason or the other. But it doesn't necessarily equate to we're going to throw the bums out one way or the other. So it's going to be interesting. Again, I, I think Biden has a huge impact on this election, but so does Trump. It's a motivating factor for both bases, to be clear. Just, just to, to play off of what Morgan just said, it's obvious, you know, 27% to 66% for the right track, wrong track. We know that that, that's, that doesn't equate to, you know, 27% are voting Democrat, 66 it, You know, it's, it's like Morgan said, there are Democrats who are unhappy too, but that speaks to motivation. When you have a right track, wrong track that is that, is that poor, 
what you have, what you could see happen is Democrats who are not very happy with how things are going could stay at home and not vote. Something I haven't seen in North Carolina politics since I started working in North Carolina politics. That was back in the 50s, right? Or 40s. <laughs> Did they have power back yeah, then? Yeah, yeah. Utility poles? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think we came in together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we need to be careful. That's how I know how damn old you are. <laughs> Democrats actually running and talking about abortion. This is something in the 90s and the 2000s. Democrats didn't even talk about abortion down at the General Assembly. And I've never seen Republicans actually articulate a nuanced position on abortion. So let's talk about Senator Michael Lee down in New Hanover County. Writes an editorial a couple weeks ago about how he believes we should protect first trimester abortion. I think even Senator Berger in a Mm. press gaggle said it. Right. And then Democrats, again, Morgan, they're, you know, we're seeing ads on TV about abortion. Can you talk about this? It has to be new to you guys, too, right? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely new to see, you know, Governor Cooper cut an ad for a state Senate race. I don't think we've seen that before, but he's, you know, on TV with at least three different candidates so far that I can count that he's that he's cut ads for and possibly more coming. So Wilmington is kind of ground zero for the Senate battle mm-hmm. for the Senate or the, the supermajority, at least. And Senator Lee is being attacked on that issue. I think Senator Berger set down a marker several months ago when he said, you know, what his, his thoughts were were on abortion, what the Senate would be in favor of. Again, that's not something that we have caucused yet. Um, we, we don't have our caucus together for next year yet. We have, we have, we're electing new members or some members that aren't going to be here, some that new ones that will be. So this is not something that the caucus has decided by any means. But Senator Berger, usually when he lays down a marker like that, that's where he intends to, to lead and, tr- and try to bring the members along. And that's exactly where Michael Lee stated that he was. He's, he's for the exceptions that he's being attacked for, that saying that he's not in favor of. He has always been for those exceptions, and he reiterated that in his, his op-ed and, and, and media since then. So, yeah, that's it's going to be a matter of, you know, who the voters believe on that. But I, I think that this race is not only going to be about abortion. There's a lot of other issues. Um, economy is still the most important issue in voters' minds. That's what the polls tell us. So... Abortion is a huge factor, but I think at the end of the day, in five weeks from now, the, the economy and, and opinions on, on Biden, how he's running this country, is going to be the main factor. It's going to be an interesting caucus. Can we all agree on yeah, that? Yeah, it will be. <laughs> you, know, you know, I think the key with abortion is the reason candidates are talking about it is because voters are talking about it. And it's fascinating that you have Republicans actually defending their position on abortion, try to get the nuance when it just shows you how salient of an issue this is this year. I will tell you in a lot of the, you know, Nathan and I both do a lot of polls and we'll tell you one of the things we look for are on whether it's issues or candidate based is, is how motivated you are. So we ask everybody a zero to 10 question, give us a, a number, how motivated or how likely you are to vote this year. And so the voters in a midterm that pay the most attention, that we pay the most attention to, who will score you eight, nine, or 10, because those are the ones that are actually going to turn out. If, you, if you're a five in a midterm, you're not voting. Or the chance, there are very few of you who mm-hmm. say five that you're voting. And the thing about it, the economy is still the issue that is the one voters are most focused on. But when you ask candidates if abortion is one of their top three issues, 92% of those voters are highly motivated or scores a nine or 10, they're turning out. And I think that's what you see. They do, 60% of North Carolina voters, as we've seen across polls, 
either like the law the way it is now or favor favor less restrictions. That's where the population is. That's where the voters are. And and, and again, I, I do think it's a it's a year Republicans have have a slight advantage. They had a huge advantage earlier this year, but a slight advantage. I sort of liken it back to twenty eighteen. In 2018, Democrats were building a really large blue wave for much of the year. And then the Brett Kavanaugh hearings came around. Mm. And what that did was it gave Republicans something to be mad about and something to be energized about. And Democrats had a better year than Republicans in 2018, but it was greatly diminished from what it would have been pre-Kavanaugh. And I think the same thing's true uh, with the Dobbs decision. I mean, I would tell you in 2018, I think we'd have broken the majority in the state house. I think we'd picked up at least one more uh, North Carolina Senate seat had it not been for the Kavanaugh hearings. You brought up the house and you both have been talking primarily about the Senate. We've heard a rumor that the governor is really focused on the Senate side. It seems like a lot of the resources are on the Senate side. What does the house look like I think the House is getting a lot of resources. I think you've seen more Republican spending early, uh, and the Senate spending is coming later, clearly. But the House, you've seen a lot of spending early. I think the governor's focused on both chambers. It is it, He is very, you know, he spent and raised uh, tons of money, millions of dollars in 2018 to break these supermajorities, and is raising a lot of money this time to make sure we don't go back into a supermajority. Listen, and I think a lot of folks are responding to that, not only uh, donors and business folks, they like the divided government. It's working for North Carolina right now, where there's no extreme one way or the other. You know, we've, we, we were the best business climate in the state, I mean, excuse me, in the nation right now. That's largely due to uh, a, a sort of a coalition government that is working. You've seen broad agreement from the governor and Senator Berger and the speaker on energy issues on the last two budgets that have funded a lot of education. And you're seeing broad agreement right now on healthcare, on Medicaid expansion. We just hadn't gotten it done yet, but we're going to get it done. And so I think people see this is a model that's working for North Carolina. What we don't need is to go back into super minority or super majorities where one party has unchecked power. And look, you look around, regardless of what some of the leaders are saying, you look around the country and you see these abortion bans, these don't say gay bills. I think that's bad for business, y'all. It's not just bad for because it's in the chase for those employees and workers that are so struggle to get right now. You have to create an environment where they feel welcome and they don't feel discriminated against or their rights are taken away. And the same with true with voting rights. And I think that's why North Carolina is attracting so many, so many companies right now and so many employees want to work here and live here. I'd love to see a poll on how many voters know who's in the majority in the House and the Senate and, and, and that we have divided government. I, I, I think so that, that would be an interesting to, to look at. I, the polling I've seen is most people don't, don't know who's in charge of the, of the House or the Senate mm-hmm. and the, at the state level. But I would say for looking at the House, I mean, I think it's obvious that the Senate has, has gotten a lot more attention from the governor. Uh, that was true two years ago also. I mean, I, I don't think Governor Cooper's, maybe maybe you want to break some news, Morgan, if he is cutting ads for any House members. I, I, I've only seen Senate. I think that's where the focus is. I think I think the, the thinking is, I could be wrong, but I think the thinking is that the House supermajority will kind of rise or fall um, just with the political environment. And so the Senate is the, is the tougher one for Democrats to crack or to keep us out of the supermajority. And so the House will likely follow whatever what happens in the Senate. So if they can, if Democrats can block us from taking the supermajority in the Senate, they probably blocked the House. Also, you only need to block one or the other. So I, I think that's that's where the game is. A lot more spending happened in the Senate two years ago. Took looking at the outside groups on both sides, and I think you'll see the same thing this year. 
purely looking at numbers, it's easier to focus on the Senate. Is that not true? It's fewer races. It's yes. easier for our old heads to be get wrapped around that, no doubt. The House well, has yeah. a lot more it, competitive races as far yeah, as the, the is, number of seats. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, probably the other reason is is TV. Um, it's it's harder to justify TV sometimes in a, in a House race when you have you know 90,000 people versus a Senate race, which might be a big chunk of a media market like the Michael Lee race we've been talking about. I mean, that's a small media market, but New Hanover County, that's, you know, 210,000 people in that district or so. And that's the majority of that, that media market. So it's easier to justify TV. And that's where especially the outside groups uh, like to put their money. Let's talk about the parties. They seem to have some long-term challenges. Republicans seem to not be doing as well these days in urban areas. When I, again, when I first came in, there was Republicans representing downtown Raleigh. Charlotte had a strong delegation of Republicans. And then for Democrats, Morgan, you and I have talked about this. Democrats elected as far west as Alexander County. Good John Snow out in the, John, and, and Joe Sam Queen right. way out there. That's, that's right. right. Uh, Mark Baznight up in the Outer Banks. There seems to be a collision course that's coming. The urban areas are growing, Nathan, at a higher rate. The rural areas are somewhat insulated because of the way we draw districts and county lines. Does this keep you up at night when you think about future elections or even this election? How do Democrats uh, return to relevance in rural areas, Morgan? And Nathan, how do Republicans get a stronghold again in the urban and suburban areas? And I know the suburban area is probably less of a challenge. That seems to be where the battleground is. Nathan, let's start with you. Look, a lot of things keep me up at night, but not usually politics. I got four <laughs> kids. They, they, they're ones that keep me up at night worrying about stuff. I would say, uh, you know, we're in a political realignment and that that's what's happening nationally. It's what's happening in North Carolina. The Re- Republican Party is becoming more rural, uh, more populist. The Democratic Party is becoming more urban, more cosmopolitan. That's that's a, a trend that's been going on for years. I mean, it's it really was going on before Donald Trump. He probably you know poured gas on that fire and made it accelerate. But you know we're we're looking at a political realignment that's happening. Yeah. So you know are we talking about a collision course in North Carolina, possibly. But I think that I I kind of look at politics like the show Survivor where you have these coalitions and you we've might, actually pitched that as a show for the general assembly. Yeah. that would be funny. <laughs> Who, who's voted off the Island. So, I mean, you look at it, so you, you have, if you ever watched the show, you might have a, a coalition of five people who are voting together and you have another coalition of four people who are voting together. But the guy that's at the bottom of the five might say, Hey, I think I can move up if I switch to the other side. And that's, that's true in politics. You see it all the time. If one group, it feels disaffected right now. You're, you know, it's working class white voters. That's that's who we're talking about for the last you know several cycles who have been traditional Democrats who've left that party and are now voting more Republican. And on the Democratic side, you see college educated whites who've been traditional Republican voters are leaving the Republican. So that's kind of the switch that's happening. Mm-hmm. And do I think it favors one party or the other? I don't, I don't think it necessarily favors either party. I mean, you've seen competitive elections, uh, you know, in North Carolina, especially for, for every every cycle, it's competitive. So there will be some switch. Democrats will pick up ground in the cities. We're going to keep picking up ground in rural areas. And if it looks like that coalition doesn't work, somebody who's on the bottom of that coalition is going to switch and we're going to continue to have competitive elections. One of the things I, I, I love about where we are currently is that if you love politics, it's an exciting time to be North Carolina and it has been for the last decade and I think it will be at least for the next decade we are a 50-50 state I mean when you look at 
the Senate races, the U.S. Senate races, the gubernatorial elections, the presidential elections. You're a point, point and a half, sometimes 10,000 votes. I remember too, uh, too well from 2016. Uh, and the governor's race is, and look at Sherry Beasley. She lost her Supreme Court race. That's 401 votes statewide. I mean, it's an incredible time. And, and there are a couple of reasons for that. And, and I think Nathan talked about them. And, and Brian, you, you sort of opened the question that way. Is the reason we're a 50-50 state right now is because we are essentially two states rolled into one mm. you have the urban suburban areas that are getting larger and larger i mean while we've been sitting here talking 15 people have moved into wake county i mean that it just it feels that way wake and mecklenburg alone have added over a hundred thousand new registered voters in the last few years um just those two counties alone those urban and suburban areas not only get larger they're getting more democrat you know brian you've heard me tell us before one of the fascinating things i think it shows where north carolina why we are where we are is you look at places like Randolph County and Durham County, Randolph County, most Republican County in the state or has been, they were Republican before the civil war before way before it was cool. And you look at Durham County, which is the largest urban uh, County that gives the highest percentage of Democrats who would, who would have thought in our, the way we've done politics for the last 50 years uh, that this would have made sense is that a, a candidate Roy Cooper running for governor in 2016 would get a lower percentage of the vote in Randolph County than Barack Obama did running for president in 2008. Wow. That doesn't make sense to you. The other side of it is look at Durham County. Durham has the largest percentage of African-American voters, the largest percentage of college-educated voters, the largest percentage of advanced college degree uh, of any county in the state. In a similar flip, Barack Obama got a less uh, got fewer percentage of the vote in 2008 in a historic candidacy in a in a county that is very African American has a huge African American population. Roy Cooper did better than Obama did eight years later in Durham. And what you see is you've got this the as I talked about the urban and suburban side, which is more college educated, more diverse. You've got rural areas which are less college educated and less diverse. And the reason we're 50-50 right now is Republicans in the rural areas have been able, and a lot of it's been due to Trump, have been able to turn out the vote at a much higher level than they than their population rates. And so what's happening is that that is that is offsetting the urban growth. At some point, we're going to reach a tipping point when Charlotte and Raleigh and, and you know, whether it's Wilmington and Asheville, Greensboro, some even the smaller um, urban areas are going to get to just too big. But we're going to end up in a place like Virginia. But at this point, we are deadlocked at 50-50, and that plays itself out even in redistricting. Listen, you can, you can draw the maps and gerrymand them however you want, but you can't change where people live. Right. And we're going to see 10 years from now, Wake, and we saw it this just last year, Wake and Mecklenburg keep picking up seats. Rural North Carolina keep losing seats, or they get more counties in a seat. And that's going to keep happening. You know, Morgan talks about North Carolina being a 50-50 state. I agree it's very competitive, and it's kind of like two states in one. I agree with that. But if you look back and you start with Obama in 08, North Carolina has been right of center, right of the median state in the country every every cycle since 2008 and, and, and previous. So, you know, even even though Obama won the state in 2008, he also won in a landslide. So North Carolina was right of the center median state. And that was that was true in 2020. 2020, uh, Republicans won 16 out of 20 statewide races. They were all close, all close races, competitive. But Republicans are, are, you know, I'd still say this is a center-right state. It's slightly right of the center of the country politically. And in a good 
Republican year, which this should be at least a, a modestly good Republican year, North Carolina is to the right of that, then I think it will be a good year for Republicans. You know, it's interesting. He, he's absolutely right about 2020. One of the fascinating things, the silver lining I look at for Democrats, is the difference in Democratic performance in 2016 and 2020. We did we lost 16 of 20 statewide races, but on average we did 2% better than we did four years prior. Hmm. Democrats keep doing and that's largely because of the urban areas. It's not just urban areas. Listen, look at places like Cabarrus County. Look at places like Gaston Union. These have not been Democratic County, Johnston, but look at the difference in, in Democratic performance between 2016 and 2020. They're actually, Democrats are getting a higher percentage of the vote. And the difference between winning 33% in Union County versus 35%, it's a big deal, y'all, statewide. And same thing for two for Johnston County. Cabarrus County is one of those I think is going to be a real bellwether. That Democrats did six points better in Cabarrus County just over four years. That's but what you're seeing is these college-educated voters that have been confined to the border of Mecklenburg are now moving out in, further into the exurbs, not just the suburbs. You see the same thing from Wake to Johnston, Wake to Franklin in a lot of these areas. And, and look at it in even Henderson County. The Buncombe County uh, influence of, of northern Henderson is getting more Democratic. Continuing on statewide elections and the problems that the parties may have in the future. With folks going to the middle during this race, how does that look for a statewide race, let's say governor in 2024, folks being middle versus partisan and where the electorate lies it's really hard to predict in politics uh you know two years out um i think you know morgan mentioned this earlier uh donald trump is you know maybe the most influential former president we've ever seen certainly in modern times i think um whether or not trump decides to run for president again um, what happens with his uh, legal issues whether he is you know in the republican primary or not will be a, a big determining factor in how the the overall political environment it looks in North Carolina and across the country. It's very hard to predict what what that would be. Um, but I you know I think 2024 could could be set up as a, a really competitive record breaker type money spending year uh, like we seem to have so often in North Carolina. Well yeah and you know the thing about it Scott that's fascinating is is voter participation is up at record numbers the last couple of cycles. And that's one of the things we, it's gonna be interesting to see what we see this cycle. We obviously have a, a, a big US Senate race, but we, we've seen tremendous growth in voter participation. Look at the presidential years from 2016 to 2020. You had a 10% increase in voter turnout in four years. That's insane. That's not what we're used to seeing. If you, you know, you look at the 20, um, excuse me, in 2018, you, you had a 20% increase in midterm turnout over the last four years from a midterm. That's, again, that's insane when you think about it. And that was it. with no statewide that, That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. And so the difference is, and Nathan's 100% right, in 2018, you had 53% of voters turn out. In 2014, you had the most expensive Senate race in North Carolina history and only 44% turned out. A 20% increase with, with a, in a blue moon election. So it's, it, I do think voters are more engaged. Some of this is because they're more juiced. I, I you know, I, I don't give Trump credit for anything, but I will say this about Trump. He is the most motivating force in the history of politics. And that's not just for Republicans. That's for Democrats as well. Donald Trump has done more to unite and motivate Democrats than even Obama did. I mean, it's incredible. But specifically, let's say you have a moderate candidate and you as people who um, talk to candidates, 
you have a moderate candidate, how are they going to be able to get through a primary with the way that our electorate is becoming more partizan? I, I think <laughs> I, I, good I, question. <laughs> it, it's a great question. And I tell you, I think it, it comes down to resources. Uh, ultimately, everybody says they want a moderate candidate, but a moderate candidate whoever on either party has to be able to put the resources together in the coalition to win. Uh, I, I think you're going to have a titanic governor's race in 2024. Uh, not only is it because of the environment we talked about, um, where you have this set of ping pong voters who bounce back and forth between the parties. They're unaffiliated by nature, but they're, they really swing. They don't pay attention. They're thinking about something else besides politics all the time. I'm afraid, Brian, they're probably not listening to us <laughs> on this podcast, uh, those, those set of swing voters. But you're likely to have Josh Stein uh, as the nominee, Josh raised more money in 20, 2020 than any attorney general in the history of the country. Uh, you've got Mark Robinson, who is likely to be the nominee, who's showing a lot of fundraising ability and ability to connect with Republicans, especially primary voters. I think you're going to have a, one for the ages in 2024 uh, when those two guys uh, go up against each other. Yeah, I agree with that. And and also, I mean, to get back to your question, Sky, I mean, in, in politics today, it's it's very tribal. So even if a, a very conservative candidate gets through the Republican primary and that's the nominee or a very liberal Democrat gets through the primary and that's their nominee, which, you know, is more likely that the, the primary electorate is going to vote more and more base uh, candidates. They, they still pull most of that. They, they keep most of their vote intact because mm-hmm. everybody is tribal and voting one side or the other. There's fewer and fewer uh, swing voters. So, I you know, a lot of people blame uh, redistricting or, you know, quote unquote, gerrymandering for kind of the polarization. I think that's totally false. Just go look at some of the some of the more swingy districts across the country and you'll still see very conservative Republicans and very liberal Democrats winning those primaries. And that's because that's who votes in the primary and they stick with their candidate in the general. Yeah. And the truth is we self-segregate, right? We do it in our personal lives, who we hang out with, the neighborhoods we live in. Uh, the schools our kids go to, we self-segregate the news that we consume. Uh, and it, Nathan's right. It is increased. It increased when we only hear one side of an argument, uh, our side is right and their side is wrong. And you have an increasing, and you know, the rhetoric at the national level is so aggressive and it doesn't leave a lot of room for people as we talk about these swing voters to want to participate or be interested in until they have to, which is why they break late. So throughout the year this year, we've heard, will there be supermajorities? Back in March, everyone said, landslide, yes. Governor Cooper, when he speaks, he says, hey, we're not going to win a chamber, but we can maintain my veto. So what are the chances that there will be a supermajority come November? So I think um, there's, a, there's a site that looks at legislative races. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of forecast models out there. You've probably, if you're into politics, you've been to these sites like 538, uh, the New York Times or The Economist. They all have these. Uh, and there's also, a, you know, betting markets. Uh, Predict It is one where you could actually put money on who you think is going to win. So there's, there's all kinds of different ways to look at the, what the forecasts are saying. Um, there's a good site for state legislative races uh, that's called CN Analysis, and it has the odds of a Republican supermajority in the House at 50-50. Mm. It, was, it was about one in four chance a couple months ago. Now it's 50-50. Republicans in the Senate, it was 50-50 a couple months ago. Now it's 65%. Mm. So that's, that's kind of where the, you know, the, the models are saying and just to, to clarify, this model also looks at U.S. Senate, U.S. House, and it's pretty, 
it's pretty in line with, with what those models are saying. I think most models at the national level say, you know, basically it's polar opposites. Republicans have about a two out of three chance to win the house. Democrats have about a two out of three chance to hold the Senate. Uh, so that's, that's kind of what the conventional wisdom is, at least based on the polling right now, uh, where this will turn out. Yeah, I, listen, I think it should be very close. I, I think that we're on track to keep the supermajority at bay in both chambers, but I think it's going to be close. It's going to be very close at the end of the day. Again, you know, as we talked early, some of this is you got to remember in the Senate, we'll talk about specifically, Joe Biden won uh, 50, uh, 20 seats with over 52% of the vote. Okay, there are four more seats that between 52 and 49, Democrats have to win one of those. If they win one of those, they keep the Senate out of the supermajority. The House numbers are very similar. There's a larger group of numbers, as we talked about, between that 49 and 51 percent. I think there's nine or 10 House races that fit into that. Some Democrats uh, control now, some Republicans control. It's going to come down to those seats and how they break late. But I think right now I like our chances, uh, but it's going to be close. Come January, when the new General Assembly is seated, there will be how many Republicans in the Senate? I don't like to do the prediction game at all. That's why I brought my stats from someone else who did it. Um, but what Morgan said is right in, in the Senate. So another way to put this is you've got 28 seats where Trump got 50% plus, and then you got two more or, or close to 50%, at least, at least the two party vote share of 50% plus. And then you got two more seats that uh, are basically toss up. So Michael Lee's seat is, was 49 Biden, 49 Trump. 49 and change. So that's that's a pure toss-up. And then the uh, Bobby Hannig race against Valerie Jordan, that's a seat that if you look at your your kind of, uh, you know, the prognosticators in town who base their, base their models looking backwards of how political performance in the past, you have a, you know, a PVI or voter, a partisan voter score mm-hmm. in different districts, that's going to show as a Democratic seat, but it's been trending Republican for years. Uh, it's a very rural seat, and that trend we think is is going to catch up this year, and and that will be that would be the thirtieth seat if we want it. And I'd say in reverse, I think the trend is bad for Michael Lee's district. You've got in twenty twenty statewide, and I go back to the statewide map because of the fact you got a lot of these court of appeals races, these lower down ballot races. The, the truth is, voters do not know; they just don't have an awareness of who they are. Almost every single Democrat running in twenty twenty especially the ones that many of the ones who lost statewide all won Michael Lee's district. And I think this is a district Cooper did two points better. Uh, no, excuse me, did three points better over four years. The average Democrat did two points better between 2016 and 2020. So I do think, listen, I think the Northeastern district that Valerie Jordan's in is, is more of a challenge because it's more rural, but I, I think there's going to be enough. She's running a good enough campaign that she's going to be able to hold on. But I think Michael Lee's is the one that's the best pickup option for Democrats. If you had a magic wand and you could fix one thing in our political realm today, what would it be? So I've, I've thought of two things. One, one I'll say when I have my my legislative hat on, if I go b- back and work at the legislature again, and I know I thought about this a lot when I'm a lobbyist, you guys probably, you probably won't admit to this, but you've probably thought the same thing. <laughs> Looking at all the states across the country, the different laboratories of democracy, and look at Nebraska with the unicameral mm-hmm. legislature. Mm-hmm. Just think of how nice uh, lobbying would be if you only had to lobby one legislative body and not have to worry about it getting killed once it goes over to the Senate rules. So <laughs> that would be my, my legislative <laughs> one. My political one, though, this is a pet, a, another pet peeve of mine, is this trend of, of what I call failing up, where you have 
a candidate who will lose a race and then run for a bigger race in two years. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like an epidemic. And, and there's, I, I counted about a dozen candidates that I know of. I'm sure there's probably more in North Carolina who are, are failing up this election, who mm. lost a campaign last time and are running for an even bigger race this time. So I wish, I think it should be like a video game. If you can't get past a certain level, you don't get to just skip <laughs> to the next level. You have to keep fighting. <laughs> Call it like the Mike Causey rule. Like he, he kept trying for the same race and uh -huh. he eventually won. You shouldn't get to jump a level and go for something bigger. That would be my magic wand change. First time we've heard that. Good it, one. It's a good one. Let me ask you about your first answer, though. I think yeah. I know the answer. Which chamber do you get rid of? Uh, I'm, I'm not going to comment. <laughs> you can probably guess based on who I work for and what we've been talking about in this pod. But uh, starts with an S, ends with E, but there must be one of them. You also mentioned Senate rules, though. So. Right. right. <laughs> yeah, true. Morgan. So I would do two things. First of all, on the uh, legislative front, I would find a way to do nonpartisan redistricting. Uh, listen, the truth of the matter is, and I can say this as somebody who's done it on the Democratic side when we were in control, as long as you let people draw their own districts where they live and where they run again, you're never going to get fair districts. And it doesn't matter who's drawing. Again, I, Republicans have, and I tip my hat to them, uh, they have been incredible and diabolical in how they draw districts, but it works and they, and they, and they've done it for, as an operative hat, I tip to them. But at the end of the day, we need nonpartisan redistricting to get folks that, so we don't have one party having a huge advantage, uh, as you go into it on the, another side to it, I would tell you, I think that, uh, one thing that I know Nathan would love to see is get rid of this governors can only run twice thing. I think this is, you know, I, I, you know, I, 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 I think that, uh, you know, you we know who cuts your checks. Yeah, you, got, you got a governor with 55% approval rate and Republicans like him. I don't know why we need another governor. It's like, you know, it's uh, get rid of that thing. Uh, so anyway, those would be my two things. So Nathan Babcock and Morgan Jackson, thank you for being on the podcast today. This was a fascinating discussion. Love the way you interacted with each other, the way you talked to us. Both of you certainly know how to do politics better. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you. Appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, my man. Good to be with you. The Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more information. All right, so that interview went a little longer than we usually do for our guests, but I thought it was so important. We both thought it was so important that we hear their perspectives on the election. It was noticeable that Nathan and Morgan really agreed on a lot. They are probably looking pretty much at the same polling. They're looking at the same media, the same TV buys. And as far as the mechanics go, there's seem to be just a lot of respect for each other and their opinions. They certainly have their political differences. It made for an interesting conversation. And I, <laughs> to be honest, guy, we could have recorded for hours. These guys just so, at such a granular level understand what is happening in these various districts. So we hope this conversation was beneficial to you. Of course, we won't know what's going to happen until late Tuesday, November 8th, maybe even later that week.
Tweet of the week. This week's tweet of the week. So we talked about this and we were like, has it been overdone? But we have to go with the tweet of Stephen A. Smith talking about North Carolina. So the tweet originally came from someone. I I think there's more to explore here, but someone just named Crab at Crabman1999. <laughs> so I don't know what else they have takes on, but could be good. And it is Stephen A. Smith, like I said, they were talking about the Cardinals-Panthers game, and he goes on to name some cities in North Carolina. Now, there were 1,800 retweets, about 500 quote tweets, and over 8,000 likes. Per usual, the comments in Twitter were pretty funny. A lot of people commenting that he only was talking about the Piedmont. People were getting pretty defensive if their specific city wasn't mentioned. Again, he says, yes, I know all of North Carolina and starts naming places. And the first place he named is Kernersville. <laughs> and so somebody put, yes, I know North Carolina well. First off, Kernersville. <laughs> And then someone said, you know, when Stephen A. starts talking about Kernersville, he's about to say something really mean about the Panthers. <laughs> and then someone said, going to tell my kids this is Petey Pablo. Obviously, everyone knows the Petey Pablo North Carolina song where he lists all of the towns and cities in North Carolina. And if you're wondering if someone made this a remix, they did. That's good. Stephen A. Smith, he is an alum of Winston-Salem State University. He is a Ram, and uh, he seemed to concentrate a lot of his cities right there in the Piedmont area around Winston-Salem. Yeah. Someone said it was all of the stops on the Amtrak line. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, what pitiful Carolina Panthers. It's not great. Oh, they're awful. Talk about wasting a Sunday afternoon. You feel like, all right, this is going to happen. These guys get to the fourth quarter and it's just abysmal. I'm just waiting for the press conference in which he gets fired. Someone's got to get fired. Oh my. Well, you know, football season, we've talked about it. Fall is here. Oh, do you want to talk about Illinois winning last weekend? Oh, did they win? Yeah. They beat the lights out of Wisconsin. Really? Yeah. It's pretty big. Is for, that big? Yeah. And Wisconsin's coach got fired the next day. So do you, what's the over-under that they make it to the Meineke muffler ball? You're so <laughs> annoying. Okay. Well, I hope so. Here's to being number 37 in oh, How's country. UNCG's football? Oh. Never been scored on. Oh. Never lost a game. Because they don't have a football program. Stop projecting. <laughs> We focus on academics at UNC Greensboro, making tomorrow's leaders. In the weekly episode of Brian's Life. So last week he comes in. Let me just tell the story. (laughs) (laughs) Last week he comes into the office. I'm sitting at my desk. And first of all, he makes a ton of noise every time he comes into the office. So just picture that. Sometimes you walk extra on the steps. I'm not sure why you do that either. Mm. And so he makes a lot of noise. So you'll turn around and all of your attention will be on him. 
Shocking. Brian likes attention. So he walks in. He's got his head down. And he's like, I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to bring it up. No. I'm not a bragger by nature. He's like, no, I'm not going to say anything. I'm like, I already knew. I'm like, you lost weight. And you're like, yeah, but I wasn't going to bring it up. I'm just lighter. So somebody is back on. Weight Watchers, baby. I am on Weight Watchers. I was sitting at home. I guess it was. Very weird that the pickle juice diet didn't work. Yeah, I got real hungry off pickle juice and was probably getting too much salt intake. Yeah, I bet it was the salt. Yeah, man. So I started, you know, I was watching this ad for Weight Watchers, (laughs) Jennifer Hudson. She's lost some weight. And I thought, well, I'm 51 years old and I need to lose some weight. Uh, You know, I've talked about it on the podcast before. So Mm -hmm. what I like about, I look it up and I I sign up for the app. And Okay, he's acting like this is his first (laughs) introduction to Weight Watchers. Like he saw an ad and was inspired. No, you've done Weight Watchers at least six to eight times in the last couple of years. This isn't new information to you. Well, I got back on the wagon. Okay. I'm holding to it, right? It's a point system. Certain foods have certain points. And by the way, this podcast is not sponsored by Weight Watchers. We would accept the sponsorship. We would. Weight Watchers, if you're out there, I'll be your poster boy. Anyway, I just got to make a change. And here's what I like about Weight Watchers. I can play the game. And the game is, is they have a lot of zero point foods. Yep. And so zero times whatever, right, is zero. Which is why you ate like four pounds of black beans for lunch today. <laughs> I did. <laughs> because yeah, but, the, but the sodium and the pickle juice was too much for you. Right. So my wife last night, I'm packing up my black beans, my big vat of black beans. And she's like, how many calories is that? And I'm like, look, I don't count calories. Yeah. Calories. <laughs> I'm counting. I'm so loosey-goosey. I don't even care. <laughs> I'm counting, I'm counting points, dear. And she says, well, how many points is that? That's got to be a lot of points. I said, well, a half a serving of black beans is zero points. And I'm going to have five half servings of black beans, which five times zero is what, Sky? Zero. Zero. So I had a zero point lunch today. And I'm you very had cheese full. on it. I'm pretty sure the cheese had points. Yeah, it had about four points. So you points. didn't actually have a zero point yeah, lunch. Yeah. So let's be honest with everyone here. I'm about five pounds down since I started Weight Watchers last week. So we'll see. You're, I'm you're, happy for that. Well, we're going to report back in a few months. And you're going to say, wow, Brian, you're so disciplined. This is the thing. When Brian lost weight in 2020... He was a complete psycho and not kind. <laughs> and so I'm like, <laughs> I like it when you're happier. Fat and happy. You like that? I I would never call you fat. You know my rule. Chubby and happy. No. <laughs> I don't fat shame. Yeah. Well. I just like you nice. Yeah. Not sunken in cheeks. We hope that you enjoyed this episode of the podcast. It was a, something a little different, but... Overall, we thought it provided what our listeners would really be listening for, the North Carolina General Assembly races and what that looks like. We would love to hear feedback on this, who you'd like to hear on the podcast. We're happy to take any suggestions and try to meet your needs. 
as always, thanks for listening. We really do appreciate it. Take some time this weekend to reset, enjoy the fall weather, watch some football, and remember to do politics better. You're such an old person. Just say he DM'd me. All right, so then we... (laughs) I love it when you say, we exchanged messages. (laughs) (laughs) And then... The means of communication. (laughs) Go ahead, sorry.